0: Who you surround yourself with is so incredibly powerful because to be around people who are rooting for you before you're even rooting for yourself is really important. A big part of unlocking talent is actually about creating your own family, I guess, of people who are going to ask you the right questions, who might challenge you. The joy of seeing and feeling tomorrow before it's been created. Continually challenging convention to push for certainty of a better experience when we get there. This is Forwardism. Hi
1: everyone, my name is Yomi K, and welcome to This is Forwardism, a new audio series by BMW for those who live for tomorrow today in this series i talk to creative minds who are creating shaping and designing our future together my guests and i try to put together the pieces to create a picture of the future whilst finding out what their definition of forwardism is and what it means to them so who am i lucky enough to have coming with me on our forwardism journey today well, I'm incredibly excited because today's brilliant guest is Vanessa Kingori. Now, Vanessa Kingori, MBE, I might add, is the Chief Business Officer of Condonast, Britain, and Vogue European Business Advisor. On top of that, she is also British Vogue's Publishing Director, the first female publisher in its 105 year history. And Kingori was also the first female and youngest publisher of British GQ. Vanessa is a role model in leadership, women empowerment, creativity, a pioneer, and someone I have the pleasure of knowing personally and being able to learn from. With new ideas, motivation, and empathy, she is truly breaking new ground. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome. Hi, my love.
0: How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm learning from you. Come on now. Oh, you're (laughs) far too kind, Vanessa. (laughs) I should have
1: added incredibly kind to that long list of incredible things. Uh, (laughs) I'm blushing. (laughs) (laughs) So, for those who don't know, which I'm sure is actually at this point a minority (laughs) Mm. people. Well, no, I um, think the other way. (laughs) What should our listeners know about you? Can you describe what your role is in a kind of layman's
0: terms way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always joke that, like, even my mother doesn't really get what I do particularly when my title was publisher, because that means different things slightly in different industries. And now it's like chief business officer, a kind of gear, but what are you doing at these events? And what are you doing? You know, Um, so essentially what my role is, is I am head of essentially all of our revenue streams. For Condé Nast Britain, we have 11 brands, including, of course, Vogue, which is really kind of half of our revenue. GQ, Vanity Fair, Glamour, Tatler, um, Condé Nast Traveller. So there's 11 brands, essentially. Um, My job is to make sure that the business of those brands is really tight. Revenue is the most important pillar by a long way. But to get to that, we have to have um really good business strategy, we have to have really strong brands. So a lot of my role is looking at are our brands most enhanced and aligned and all of those things. And then how do we communicate as well with the world? So things like essentially our marketing, how are we utilizing social media events and all of those things to communicate our brand strength to the world, which in turn attracts in those chichings.
1: Right. (laughs) Very, very, very busy lady. (laughs) And honestly, looking fabulous
0: whilst doing all of that, which
1: is (laughs) something in itself.
0: Oh, that's very kind. You should see me first thing in the morning. (laughs) It's a whole process, babe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a surprise to hear. And I would like to hear something else, I suppose, that might be surprising for those who have been across your journey. Can you tell us something? that would surprise our listeners, a fun fact about yourself, something that, you know, those kind of icebreaker questions that, you know, when you're doing those, get to know each other exercises, that fun fact that you normally wheel out.
0: <laughs> I've been asked this question so many times, I always find it really difficult because I guess it's more about things that are unknown about me. That because of mm. social media, right? You put out so much about yourself. And I think it's really important. I think social media is a very useful tool for me for communicating what my job's around for representation purposes. I think it's important that people see that I exist and I move in this space and in this world. So basically, you're communicating a lot about yourself. So the facts about me that are unknown um, are probably not that fun. (laughs) 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 But it's more that I'm actually, in reality, an introvert. And I think people think that... um, I'm probably an extrovert because I'm socialising a lot of the time. A big part of my job is being around people, connecting with people. I love it. I love all of that. But I've always been more of an observer than the kind of life and soul. Mm. And I think that has got me actually interestingly really far that I am probably more of a wallflower than people think. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's it, it. Might not be fun, but it certainly is interesting.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the fun stuff's out there. That's what socials for. And <laughs> I get really under true. the skin, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, obviously, this podcast is called "This Is Forwardism," and um, I wanted to start by asking what you think of when you hear the term "forwardism." Um,
0: what would you describe
1: forwardism as in your own words?
0: The term forwardism is almost what made me do this. And then the fact that you were doing it just, you know, was seal the deal, babe. But I'm not (laughs) even sure if I have the interpretation right. But the things that I think about are being future facing, being considered about the future and what's coming next. Um, And I guess probably celebrating and um, unpicking the people and things, uh, you know, um, that are moving us towards a better future. That's what comes to mind, I guess.
1: Right. That's snow on the head. Ah, um, <laughs> and I want to talk a bit more about Fordism. Um, you know, you mentioned that you're more introverted than people necessarily think. I personally know that you are someone who is very humble um, and very, you know, obviously is assured in what she's doing but also is certainly not a boastful person so this question might be slightly awkward which is given the podcast theme why do you think we wanted to speak to you what is it about you and your journey that embodies the idea of fraudism? Um it can be difficult to speak about yourself <laughs> in that way but <laughs> we
0: certainly were desperate to get you on here so we'd love to hear why you think that is oh I know uh- I love the work that was put in to get me here. I'm here now, and I appreciate yes, it. Yes, I'm thrilled. Um, <laughs> Might I add, with an injury, and you still made it, so we're very, We've got to push through, cool. man. We've got to look after ourselves, <laughs> but, you know, there's always something. Um, that is an awkward question, but let me unpick it. I guess that I care, and I communicate a lot, that I care a lot about the future um, through several lenses. I do a lot of work around youth engagement. That was the kind of, I guess, the biggest reason that my MBE was given, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I've done work in the past um, with organisations like the University of the Arts, which has really been centred around our future, our future leaders, our future thinkers, how we nurture them. And then I think the other thing that's become more apparent to me now, you know, that whole, that like, hindsight's 2020, is that I suppose I've always been someone who is future-facing and who is associated with change in my career.
1: Right.
0: I've never really been too afraid of kind of change and what's coming next. In fact, I find it kind of quite exciting. And um, I think in heritage organisations like the ones that I've worked with and around, there is or has been a lot of fear about change. And I have been, I guess, perhaps lucky in my disposition for that not to be the case for me. So a lot of my role has been around enthusing people who might not otherwise (laughs) be excited about the possibility of embracing new, different, thinking differently, and certainly about future-proofing organizations and revenue streams and doing that in a way that has um, some social responsibility built into it as well.
1: We're definitely going to be touching more on that, you know, throughout the episode. um, But I'd like to ask you also
0: what it is in a nutshell that drives you forward? Wow, in a nutshell. um, So many things. I mean, if I'm going to boil it down, I would say um, my son, (laughs) Having a child reinforces certain perspectives, but it also gives a whole new lens on the things that we're doing now and how they might impact um, what's to come for that generation. Um, I'm motivated by creativity, by positive change and by hope and possibility, I think, as well. And I think... Kind of kids embody that. They aren't the only kind of you know sort of signifier and representation of that, but they're pretty good um, embodiment of it. I think.
1: Mm. So I want to touch a little bit more on your kind of response to change um, because it's something that took place from quite a young age. I know that you grew up in posh in Kenya and then in some kits in the Caribbean, um, and then at quite a young age, I think around seven, you moved to London. Mm. um now obviously that's a pretty big change um you know enormous difference in weather conditions aside <laughs> so which that was a I big taking? deal
0: that was my <laughs> was parents chose to deal. move us to London in October oh, wow. from the tropics it was like why <laughs> well,
1: then again you love change yeah. so I'm interested Tra- in the how... seeds were
0: only being sown then so <laughs> <laughs> the love so had not t- begun <laughs>
1: How did that affect you growing up? I suppose, what lessons did you take from your childhood that I suppose you've now been able to implement now in terms of your response to um, Mm. drastic changes?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really poignant because I I really feel that that change and moving around to very different cultures, you know, I guess that there could be some people who assume that a move from kind of Kenya to you know, an island, a Caribbean island isn't that drastic, but actually culturally it is extremely different, right? And so I had to be really adaptable. I mean, at the time, like I'm laughing about the weather thing, you know, I was cursing slightly my mother even at seven (laughs) years old in my mind. But... I thank her for it so much because kids are adaptable. They have strong reactions to things Mm -hmm. um, initially and then they move on so much faster than us. So that experience has really shaped who I am and my understanding that even the most overwhelming shift um, can be incredible, right? Mm -hmm. And um, good things will come if you embrace it. And I think the great thing about when you put children through the process of change, you see them, they're so adaptable and they go through the emotions really quickly and they deal with them head on. Like I'm learning this looking at my son again, Mm -hmm. is what we do as adults is we push down our feelings and we care very much about how we present externally And perhaps sometimes don't go through the processes internally, in the moment and quickly enough. And Mm -hmm. so what happens with adults is we look like we're adapting to the change. But actually what we're doing is deferring a lot of the anxiety and building up our resistance to it. What kids do is they have a big explosion, right? They're really happy or they're really upset they get over it they embrace that emotion and then they get on with how can I adapt to this and I think unwittingly I went through that process young which means I kind of do that now when I'm faced with change I really quickly embrace what am I feeling what's causing me to feel that there should be a barrier to this. Is that good, bad, indifferent? Should I pull at some of those threads? I go through that and then I look to see where the positives are and embrace it. And so I really think that experience of moving around has been um, a big part of the reason that I have been someone who, Um, companies have kind of utilised to help people get on board with change and to make change. Um, I just tend to have less um, resistance to it if it's positive.
1: Mm. Um, I think it's so interesting that you spoke about being quite an introverted person, and then that being able to adapt so seamlessly, that's the word, (laughs) so seamlessly, that's that's a bit of a tongue twister, um, to social situations in the same way that you were able to adapt to, you know, uh, childhood in Kenya, then St. Kitts, then London. I'm interested, I suppose, in whether there have been times that you found difficult to adapt and in what environments you may have felt I suppose maybe it's been harder to get into that embracing that change mode because you said you're good with change when it's positive how do you cope when it's not necessarily positive because some change you know at times isn't
0: yeah I mean that's a brilliant question actually because I think right now everyone's talking about change in terms of you know um all positive And it's really interesting t- for you to put that lens on it, because not all change is good, right? So yeah. we shouldn't necessarily put all of our energy into adapting to things. And I think I'm quite an instinctual person. And the introverted thing is also a symptom of my childhood, where when you're put in situations that are different, different cultures, different languages, even, you have to spend a bit of time observing in order to know how to adapt and to assimilate and where not to assimilate you know because we're all right. trying to bring our whole selves to things and so there's a lot of observation required and so I think that I have quite heightened instincts and the cultures that I come from really celebrate being instinctual in a mm-hmm. way that I think western culture and society less so and that lends itself really well to the observation piece you have to be if you feel something so to your question I just don't feel like this is the right direction or this is the right fit if you are not observant what you will want to do is push that down and so everyone else seems to be getting on with it and everyone you don't know who's who's kind of fronting and feeling that they have to kind of get on with it so the thing that I do through the observation piece is really ask myself why like why are you having this reaction to this change why are you open to other types of change but this isn't gelling and then I kind of go through the process of kind of pulling on that thread and usually the type of change. I don't do well with is where there is too high human cost Mm. because it's kind of human nature to push against change. We're socialized to kind of like habitual behavior, right? And to be comfortable in what we know. And so this change thing is kind of like a bit of an oxymoron because often it's good for us, but we're not programmed to love it. And so... What I need to think about is okay, is if people are reacting badly to change, is that that kind of habitual thing or is it because it really isn't good for them? And if I see people are perhaps being damaged by change and I can't see how it's going to enhance the future, their future, the future of the organization or community they're in, that's when I pull away from change. Mm. And so for me, that's the big differentiator. If I can see change that's perhaps painful in the initial phase, but is going to unlock something better going forward, that's the kind of change I can get behind. If there's too high a human cost, then I'm not for it.
1: (laughs) Mm. I'd say from all of your answers, but then just generally also knowing you as a person, you are incredibly, as you said yourself, observant. But I'd also say very self-aware, like you really do come across like a very self-aware person. And that being said, someone did say that one day (laughs) you were going to be the publisher of Vogue and you didn't necessarily, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm. think that you didn't immediately feel like, yes, this is something I'm able to do. So I'm interested in the qualities that you think that individual that marked you out as, you know, essentially saw your future what did they see in you that you might not have picked up on yourself? Because despite that level of self-awareness, sometimes we are able or like we're capable of missing our, I don't know, some of our strengths also, as well as our weaknesses.
0: Yeah. Gosh, that's, God, you are get at this. <laughs> oh, My God. Thank you, Vanessa. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm having a therapy <laughs> session. Good God. Um... Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think one thing there is youth, Mm. right? Um, And, you know, a big part of me not seeing myself in that role is like, I didn't really know what it Mm. was. (laughs) Right? So I was like, something to do with Vogue. And, you know, when you think of Vogue, what you think about is kind of like editorial Mm. and fashion and shoots. And I didn't see myself specifically in those worlds. I actually didn't know that there was a business role that could connect me to those uh, worlds. And that's a big part of why I do a lot of youth work and engagement is that a lot of people who are really talented just don't even know where to channel that to. Right. They don't know half of the roles that exist out there. And then I think that, you know, being part of being self-aware is also knowing where you're not yet Mm. right so when that person said that I was not in any way ready for that world I wasn't there yet and so I couldn't see it yet I wasn't on that journey and so that person planted a seed and this is why I think who you surround yourself with is so incredibly powerful because to be around people who are rooting for you before you're even rooting for yourself is really important. And again, I see really talented people who don't have the right voices around them. Either they have too many yes people and a yes person is not the same as someone who's rooting Mm -hmm. for you. Or they have people who don't see their potential. And so a big part of unlocking talent is actually about creating your own family I guess of people who are going to ask you the right questions who might challenge you but also will kind of you know help you puff up your chest sometimes mm. as well when you don't <laughs> yet have it so yeah.
1: <laughs> so you know we've spoken about the publishing director role and you know as you said it is something that um, I think many people I'd say for a lot of people actually um, certainly from you know, my friendship group who weren't necessarily aware of what a publishing director was, did become aware of it because of your, you know, getting the role at British Vogue and the changes that you were able to implement there. Um It's been incredible. It's been an incredible few years and um, not just because of the incredible work that you've done and Edward's done at British Vogue, but just even having individuals such as yourself in a position of publishing director has just, you know, I think that representation has been hugely important, you know, not only making people realise that role exists, but also that, you know, people that look like us can be in that role. It's a high powered role. It's a lot of responsibility. I wonder how you at times cope with that, because I think given your appointment and it's not the first of your appointments that's been historic um there is a level at times i think of potentially a feeling of responsibility that might not necessarily exist for other people that had the role before that's not to then diminish what work they've done but it's a different thing being the first um how do you navigate that feeling
0: yeah it's you know what it's a really conscious thing for me though so i put it on myself Mm. um actually The conscious thought of being a more visible publisher, it was a very conscious thought and it started at GQ. Mm. And I've always been like, my brain is wired in a slightly different way to a lot of other business people. And I've always been a kind of entrepreneur and I was given the space actually to do things differently. And I never understood why publishers were kind of this like behind the scenes Mm role and things were very church and state when I kind of started and so there was this idea when I became like the publisher of GQ that kind of creatives were you know I guess church and then the business people were state and they were very separated very little interaction or crossover and I was just like this is kind of crazy to me because these two roles are symbiotic what a business person on a media brand does is they are basically leveraging the creativity you're going out and saying look how incredible look at our orbit that we're in look at how amazing our shoots are and all of those things and don't you want to be a part Mm. of this world advertiser for example or partner or what have you and to do that really well, you need to be super close to it. You need to care about it. You need to be able to name the photographers and give anecdotes about the shoots and and care about it, like be a part of it. And equally for the editors and those guys, the more money a brand makes, the more they have to play with. The more elaborate their shoots can be, the more elaborate their stories can be, the more they can work with kind of more... Um, expensive talent and so on. So for me, I just looked at this kind of, you know, long established 100 year old kind of (laughs) system and said, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) So the other really big thing for me was I really wanted to hire differently. Mm. And at the time I stepped up, the media industry was still a very closed industry. And at the time, The organisation I work for and everyone else barely used even recruitment companies. I don't think we Mm -hmm. had yet. So everyone was one degree of separation. And I was trying to introduce digital in a really big way. And, you know, (laughs) I'm kind of someone who represents diversity. And I was saying to them, we need to hire differently. And they kept saying to me, well, these are the candidates who are stepping forward The people that you're asking for don't exist. Mm. They don't operate in this world. They don't have experience here. And I just didn't believe that. And I believed strongly that if I was more visible, people would feel more comfortable about applying for jobs in our world, Mm. right, in the media industry, because they would say, well, hang on, if she can exist and actually... Um, rise to such a senior position, I shouldn't count myself out either. So it was a very conscious decision, even at the GQ mm. stage, to put myself out there. And actually, I simultaneously started um, a program. Actually, I didn't ask the company's permission because <laughs> I thought, they were, but I started this program where I just wanted to do like a paid internship program at the time where I needed more support in what I was doing, but my private kind of aspiration was to bring people into Condé Nast who otherwise would have no other route. Mm. They didn't have a relation there. They didn't have anyone else in the industry. Their dad didn't work at some adjoined organization. They had zero connection to our world. And so I did this program for quite a few years. And I thought, if I'm going to have people apply for these internships, then I need to be visible and they need to think that it's a safe space, right? Right. And so I had such a strong reaction to that. And the upside of that is it also kind of built our business because people were like, okay, I feel like I know her, right? You know, Mm -hmm. like we were talking about with social media in particular, you're putting out your personality and you're welcoming people in. There are a lot of stereotypes about, let's be very real, particularly black women and being unapproachable and being difficult. And so I made a very conscious effort to be visible from a representation standpoint and to bridge stereotypes and a few other things. To your point, then Vogue happened and that piece went into a different stratosphere. Absolutely. You know, because I remember um, it was so crazy, actually, Yomi, because I don't know if you remember, but we were shooting the images for your book. (laughs) I remember. Do you remember? Okay, so let's share with the world. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about this. (laughs) I was contributing to your book and then you had set up a shoot to... Um, have like some images Mm -hmm. for for your contributors. And at the same time, you know, obviously I couldn't share, but it was about to be announced that I was moving into this Vogue role, which had all of this kind of, you know, glass ceiling stuff connected to it. And I knew it was going to be a big moment. And I remember asking your team, like, I don't even have a headshot. (laughs) Because Edward was saying oh my God, I just spoke to Naomi. She wants to post about, like everyone is buzzing Mm -hmm. about the fact that this is the first person of colour, the only person of colour to ever enter in this role. The first woman and so on and so forth. And, you know, how different I was to um, publishers of the past and also publishers of the present day. You know, it's not like there was all of this change going on around me. It was really only me um and still only me so he was like oh I just spoke to Iman Iman wants to post and I was like God, I don't have a picture that can live on Naomi Campbell's Instagram or you know Iman's and and so I was like hey yummy you know that picture that I, took? <laughs> can I can I use it even though it's ahead of your book and I can tell you what but um anyway, that changed the visibility significantly, yeah. the visibility I've been working on. And of course it comes with responsibilities because sometimes my... Outward communication doesn't match what's really going on in my life. You know, like right now, I'm having quite a challenging back Mm. issue. But if you look at my social media, it looks like I'm skipped to doing off (laughs) to party after party and having a fabulous time. And sometimes, you know, um, I always say the reality of my work is a lot is inward facing a lot is number crunching I spend more time on, on spreadsheets and pages than I do at anything fabulous but I think it's important that people see that there's a fabulous part of my life and my role because I want people to be attracted in and I want for the funnel to look different than when I was coming through.
1: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Vanessa. And you <laughs> speaking on that just reminds me when me and, when me and Elizabeth actually first, um, Elizabeth's my co-author for, um, listeners. Um, when we first actually came across you and, um, I think it was Elizabeth that came across your, um, sort of profile online and said, you know, this woman is the publisher at British GQ. And it was such a mo- we were gobsmacked, like, this person is black, she's female, she's fabulous. It was just that visibility. That I remember the exact picture of you that we saw in this article saying, this is, um, you know, GQ, which, you know, as a brand is, you know, in terms of its readers, certainly historically quite male, quite white, very male, very white essentially. And we had no idea. And I think with your appointment at Vogue, as you said, it just went stratospheric where people were coming up to me like, oh my god, this is this woman's in your book. I'm like, I know, <laughs> we, we know, <laughs> we know she's in our There's book. There's such
0: amazing and serendipitous yeah. timing because <laughs> I, I think, think that your career was also kind of taking off into, and I could feel it like it was, it was almost like tangible the energy around you um, exactly. at that time, and so it was so crazy. Actually, I had literally zero time because at the time when you asked me to come in and do that book stuff. I was straddling the conversations with Vogue. I was already <laughs> helping Edward. I was still doing the GQ Goodness. job. I was like moonlight. And I couldn't let like GQ know that I was helping oh Vogue. And I was also planning out this communications plan. And But sometimes you just feel like this is going to be a game changing moment for someone. And I felt that for you and for Elizabeth as well. And I really felt like I wanted to support that and be a part of it. But... um To your point, like something that really, really motivates me is letting people see in a a kind of non-pushy way that they can not only exist in spaces, but they can thrive in them as Mm. well. And that's my key objective with the visibility piece. It does come with some responsibility. And I'm not even going to lie, sometimes it's a lot. Mm. But um, overridingly, it also brings a lot of positivity into my life. And the interactions and how we got to know each other is like the most perfect example of that. Because people reach out to me who then become like lifelong friends. Do you know what I mean? And their experiences also empower me and make me feel like some of the things that I'm challenged by are possible as well so it's kind of like a kind of self-feeding kind of situation for the most part
1: thanks Vanessa (laughs) I know how important you mentioned and you know just generally through your work and how you've been with myself and so many other people I know I know how important sort of mentorship and opportunity in making sure the next generation have opportunities is to you um so I want to talk to you about the first BMW UK and British Vogue scholarship program um which Yay. was yeah so very exciting <laughs> a four-month paid that being the operative phrase because for so long yes. so many placements weren't just generally across the industry so four-month paid scholarship placement for three successful candidates across, rather, both British folks' offices and BMW UK's offices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the first year of the partnership
0: and how it went down? It's just been amazing, actually. And... I'm so grateful. That's the other reason I'm here today, because BMW are really, like, about it. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that they would get behind this and partner with us on this is really important. And they see the the vision and they're about the vision as well. Because, like I said to you, on The Sneak, I did a version of this. Mm -hmm. Many, many years ago, I had this feeling that if we... If we were really careful about bringing people through who showed great promise, but maybe didn't have a connection to our industry we could do great things and i started this little it was like an intern program i just said to the company oh you know i need more help which was absolutely true but then i went out and thought i'm going to find people who i think are brilliant and who wouldn't have a shot maybe otherwise and in doing that i did that program for six years and every six months i would change over. And each of my candidates, I think bar one or two, went on to amazing things. They either got permanent jobs at Condé Nast, one went to Chanel, someone Mm. went somewhere else. Like, every single person got a job immediately out of that scheme. And the scheme basically is still going on. I have a girl now who's stepping into a permanent role at Condé Nast. But... We wanted to do something that was kind of bigger and was more kind of um, learning orientated as well. And BMW were kind of all in and loved this. And um, Michelle Roberts, a woman at BMW who I've been really connected to, is another kind of ceiling shattering person from the point of view of being like a, a woman who is like the marketing director of UK in quite a male sort of space. And so we just really clicked on this idea. And so we did this incredible kind of recruitment process, which was really fun, got to meet lots of really great people. And we've had people in who are working, they're working at the Vogue offices, and they're working um, at the BMW offices, but they're also kind of doing active learning as well. It's an an actual scholarship where they get to see different parts of the organisations. They get to spend time in the archive. They get to see how a shoot comes together. They get to see how a marketing plan comes together. And so we just very recently did an article on the three guys who won out and we had thousands of applicants. It was really telling to me how many applicants we had I think also coming out of all of the lockdowns of the pandemics where a lot of young people were thinking oh my god where am I going to get my next opportunity from and these three people who've already been through the program gave us their feedback recently for an article and yummy the way I cried the way I ugly yes. cried <laughs> As I read the responses. because they were saying the things that you know, myself and BMW team Mm. had really kind of dreamt of in that this is securing them a step. It's not just a kind of experience that is like a closed off great Mm. experience. It's giving them the confidence to step in and have like Vogue and BMW on their CV. It's also giving them the confidence to speak in rooms where they might usually be quiet and kind of blend into the background You know, I remember one meeting that we had, um, we had a boardroom meeting with all of the power players at Chanel and every one of our editors at Condé Nast. And it was a big lofty kind of room. And I remember my first time in that boardroom at Vogue House, I literally disappeared into the wall. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) not visible. Mm. I had zero voice. um, And... You know, Tammy and Cynthia, who were part of our scheme, were not only in that room beaming, but also had things to say on it. They felt so confident and so empowered by that point that they were there, able to have things to say amongst the most powerful executives at Chanel and, you know, the editors-in-chief of Condé Nast Brands. And this is, like, blowing my mind Mm. to see these young women from backgrounds that are unusual to our industries have that level of self-confidence and it was like okay hole in one like I feel like we did what we came to do and long may it continue
1: oh, Vanessa this has been such a phenomenal conversation I've still got one last question but just before I get to it I did want to just thank you so much for your time but genuinely more For just being you, like, honestly, it's so incredible to hear about your journey objectively, but obviously knowing how several years ago, you know, you gave us the time of day, gave us an interview when, you know, we certainly weren't (laughs) even close to where we are now in terms of our careers and you took a chance on us. And I just love hearing you continue to do that the fact you've always done that and I'm just very proud to know you so had to do a little speech there sorry guys oh, <laughs> but I just I have so much love about you you.
0: <laughs> you really are
1: fantastic um so loving aside <laughs> I have my final <laughs> question can we just have a loving <laughs> I know oh my god I could I could sit here <laughs> for the remainder and just tell you how fantastic you are but you know I think Likewise. that's obvious to the listeners they they've if they didn't know before, they know how brilliant you are now. Um <laughs> So I wanted to hear from you what you believe a truly inclusive media landscape would look like. You know, let's talk 2050. What do you think a truly inclusive media landscape would look like? Because we've moved kind of beyond the talk of diversity now. Diversity is still mm. hugely important, but now there is much more focus on what inclusion looks like.
0: Yeah, I think that diversity has almost become a kind of buzzword, which is kind of overused now. And inclusion um, is super important, but even that as well. And we really need to break down what that means because what I think 2050 should look like is that there is no dominant group. Mm. And if you think about what inclusion really is, it's about saying... We, the dominant group, are creating space for you, the minority group, right? Right. And that's where we need to be right now. I'm not knocking that. But I think about if we really want to think about what the future could look like, is that there is no set norm. And talent is the only thing that really counts. Mm -hmm. Like, that would be a great future, I think, I am absolutely obsessed with the idea of diversity of perspective over and above diversity, Mm -hmm. right? And so the thing that I think organisations need to be most afraid of is groupthink. Because groupthink is one of those things that you don't even know is happening and it also kind of feels good. The problem with groupthink is it feels like how things should be. Because when you have lots of people around you who are aligned to your thinking, it feels like you're on the right track, right? right? Particularly to leadership. My argument is you're not. If I don't have people around me challenging me and telling me that there are different things going on, there are subcultures I don't know about, there's ideologies and new ways of thinking and trends that I don't know about. I feel like something is wrong. So for me, what I look for are, if I'm having a meeting or a conversation with the teams that I employ, if we wrap up, particularly an ideation conversation or planning conversation too quickly because we're all aligned, that's when I panic. That means there isn't enough diversity of perspective. That means that there's group think and that means that there's a majority in that group, right? Mm. It's really, really important to bring people into the decision-making process and ideation process who have different lived experiences and so look at problems and ideas and planning through a totally different lens and bring you all that new magic and if you have too comfortable a situation you're missing all of that magic Absolutely. so that would be a kind of um media utopia mm-hmm.
1: for me oh my god I know but I know we're anti-group here, but could not agree more <laughs> with, with <laughs> what you've said. And I also was going to say Vanessa never change, but at the same time, that would be the antithesis <laughs> of what we're trying to do here at this forwardism. But I do want to thank you again. I do want to reiterate, um, how wonderful I think you are. And I love conversation that I feel like I come away from smarter so thank you
0: so much thank Vanessa. you and I feel I just love the fact that you challenge me with your perspective and the way that you think and I don't think we have groupthink here because the way you came at those questions really made <laughs> me go into myself and dig deep and so it's always good to do that as well it, it kind of I step out of this conversation with some new thoughts to kind of explore a bit more and I think that's good for me. So
1: thank you for having you me. You're so welcome. Guys, <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed today's episode as much as I have. Sadly, it is over, but as always, we will push forward. Stay tuned for our next episode with another exciting creative mind to talk us through tomorrow's world. I'm Yomi Degake and this is Audison.